This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Good morning, and welcome to The Straits Times Roundtable discussion on the Ukraine crisis. We are discussing the Russian invasion and what it means for Asia. Our panelists today are Professor Kishore Mahbubani, the veteran Singapore diplomat and currently a distinguished fellow at the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. He has joined us on Zoom. And also on Zoom is my colleague in London, Jonathan Eyre, ST's global affairs correspondent. Hi, Jonathan. Good morning. And what time is it in London? It is now just 3 a.m. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for waking up so early for us, Jonathan. Here in the Straits Times studio in Singapore with me is ST's associate editor, Ravi Bello. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be here, Vagya. Okay, so let's begin this discussion by considering what's happening as we speak. Now, on the ground in Ukraine, heavy fighting is going on. There is a 60-kilometer-long military convoy that is heading to Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital. Talks between Ukraine and Russia have had no concrete result. Hundreds are dead. Half a million have become refugees. The world appears unable to stop the bloodshed and the tragedy. Kishore, you've served as Singapore's ambassador at the United Nations. I'm sure you're following this very rare emergency session of the UN General Assembly that's going on in New York. Uh, now, the UN was founded after World War II to prevent another war. Is it failing badly, Kishore? Uh, thank you, Bagia. You're right. The UN has been weakened uh, dramatically, but it has been weakened by design. You know, having been ambassador to the UN for 10 years, I know that multilateral institutions like the United Nations constrain great powers. And what is significant is that all great powers, it doesn't matter whether United States, Soviet Union, Russia, China, believe that a weaker United Nations is better than a stronger United Nations. And if you want proof of this, when it comes to selecting the Secretary General of the United Nations, if you have the potential of being a strong, dynamic chief executive officer who can lead the organization to greater heights, you're disqualified. But if you are weak, and if you understand what the great powers want, and you meet their needs, then you become UN Secretary General. Now, this is an open secret within the UN community. So when you say that the UN has been failing, it's been failing by design, and it's been failing because there has been a long-term process to undermine it. By the same time, just to balance that, I'm very glad that this Russian invasion of Ukraine has made everyone now more aware of the UN Charter, of the principles of the UN Charter, which clearly forbid such invasions. And the fact that this principle is being reaffirmed as a result of Ukraine is a very positive development for the world. Bakia, can I just yes. say something uh, on this Please. one? Because I agree with every word that Professor Mabubani has said in terms of the uh, the faults of the UN by design rather than by accident. However, I think that there are a few areas where we have moved in this particular crisis. First, we have used the very special provision, which was only used nine times before in the 75 history of the organization, which is that after the Security Council has been blocked by one of the five veto-wielding powers, we have 
passed a resolution which sort of basically says that the Security Council is no longer functioning uh, as it should, and therefore the matter should be brought to the General Assembly. Now, of course, the General Assembly decisions are not likely to be binding on anyone in particular, but nevertheless, the voice of the international community is being heard now as we speak. And 90 countries sponsored that resolution, Singapore included. In fact, it's almost the smaller the country, the more likely it is to be on that particular list of sponsors. So, yes, it is still a glass half empty rather than half full, but it is more than what we've had in previous crises. So you sound hopeful, Jonathan. Um... Now we are already into the sixth day since the invasion began. Can I? Can I? Can I? Can I just add a footnote? <laughs> sure, sure. I yes. hope. I hope that the next time there is another crisis where the Security Council is again stuck in a logjam, as for example in the American invasion of Iraq, that you will go back to the General Assembly and we will say, General Assembly, the Security Council is cannot agree. Can you speak up? Because I actually think. I agree with Jonathan. It's actually a very positive development that the General Assembly has been convened because the Security Council is, is completely blocked. But let's do it consistently. Let's do it every time. Let's not make it exceptional. Because then you'll find, then you'll find the real power of the General Assembly coming back. I'll be talking so much that there won't be need for a war. <laughs> if the General Assembly and the Security Council keep talking, yeah, I think that there's a good solution there. Uh, yes. But Jonathan, I was going to turn to you uh, because we are now in the sixth day since the invasion began, uh, and you are a Russia expert. Um, tell me, what has startled you the most so far? What has startled me the most so far is that President Putin of Russia became the prisoner of his own misconceived ideas. He genuinely believed that Ukraine was a fake state, as he put it, uh, that will collapse like a badly baked souffle the moment you touch it. And so what he did, he sent very small troops, uh, highly mobile, but very small troops, a very uh, limited uh, uh, contingents, to straight into the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, obviously with the intent of decapitating its government on the expectation that he's going to be received with flowers or that Ukraine is suddenly going to revert to Mother Russia. Of course, what has happened is that these troops uh, were not sufficient to take on the capital and he lost the initiative. And a lot of things followed from afterwards. Uh, the whole way that the sanctions that rained upon Russia uh, would have been conceived would have been very different if Ukraine really did crumble in the first day or two. The image that the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who before used to be dismissed as just a TV comedian, and the way he transformed himself into a national hero, um, the way that the Ukrainians have managed to stave off the Russian occupation. I mean, all of this stems back to the idea that paradoxically, Mr. Putin, we all thought that it was just a rhetoric, but Mr. Putin actually believed this stuff 
that somehow Ukraine was this fake state that is going to collapse, and he's paying a very heavy price for it now. I can't for the life of me see how this could ever be spun as a Russian victory by the end of this war. Right. We'll come back to Putin in a short while, um, uh, Jonathan. Uh, but Ravi, turning to you, now we are sitting here in Singapore, uh, heart of Asia, a very safe corner of Asia. Does, does Ukraine seem very far away? No, not in the least. In fact, uh, it seems uh, immediate and alarming to me, uh, Bhagya. And uh, let me explain why. I mean, your first uh, reaction is uh, anxiety and uh, then comes indignation. And then comes the question, can it happen to us? And uh, you begin to think it might. Then mm. you begin to compare the situations in Europe and Asia. And what do you see? Europe is a continent with largely settled borders. It's got systems in place. There's a European Union, there's a NATO. Asia has nothing of that sort. It is ASEAN, which is toothless. It is an intergovernmental organization. It's not a supranational body. And as you can see from the joint statement that ASEAN produced, and you compare it with the Singapore joint statement, you know, mm. when it comes collectively, there is quite a bit of uh, uh, dialing down. Um, so we are not in a happy place and we are not too far away. We are never too far away. But for me, in these last few days, uh, the predominant thought in my mind is a sense of uh, what the French might call uh, déjà vu, uh, a sense of having seen it before. And let me explain why I've seen it before in Asia. Mm -hmm. If I take you back 40 years uh, to the start of the conflict in Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. you have a prime minister in India who's very insecure. She's got problems on her borders, on her western border. She has Pakistan. On her eastern border, she has China. And then the Sri Lankans, at that point, she was very aligned uh, to the uh, Soviet Union, as it was then called. And Sri Lanka under a president called J.R. Jayavardhana, mm -hmm. began to open up his economy to the West. He allowed the Voice of America to set up a transmitter in his country. And this triggered all of Mrs. Gandhi's insecurities. And she did not want to open a Southern flank, having enough to do on her Western and Eastern flanks. Mm -hmm. And so she set about destabilizing Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. And it proved very costly, not just for Sri Lanka. It's still suffering, as you know. There are currently there are food shortages there. It's a, right. it's a terrible plight. But it cost India greatly. Mm -hmm. India lost troops. It even lost Indira Gandhi's son, who was prime minister and the potential future prime minister. Right. It's a it's something that it's an intervention that proved very costly. And I fear today, sitting here and looking at Ukraine, that some of what I saw 40 years ago is going to play out into an immense tragedy in Europe. So striking parallels, uh, Ravi. Uh, but about the current crisis, say if I were to ask you on a scale of one to 10, what would you characterize your worries as an Asian? Well, of course, the thing is, could something like that happen here? Mm -hmm. And uh, the answer is, uh, you know, this continent as I said, you know, Europe at least has settled borders. There are so many disputes here over territory. And in this continent, you have to contend with a rising power. While in Europe, the problem is about a declining power's uh, neurosis. Right. Uh, so uh, in some ways, our situation could be more serious, if right. not handled properly. Right. 
But on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you now in terms of worry right now, what we know of this? It is too early to say, but, uh, well, you know, I think it's at about uh, 6. How about uh, Jonathan and Kishore? Would you like to say what is your level of worry right now about what's happening in Ukraine? Well, One to I ten. am, uh, on, on, in terms of the conflict, I would say it's about 5. I could see also a good scenario coming out of this, which is the beginning of the end for Mr. Putin. I repeat, uh, it's very difficult for me to see how um, how he's going to emerge from this. But I think just, uh, just to add to Ravi's points, there are, I think we mustn't be blinded just by the Russian invasion, although that's the most egregious uh, violation of international law, but by two other concepts, which I think are equally important, which we must reject outright. The first is the idea that it's for someone else to decide who is a nation. Uh, the whole theory of Russia is that the Ukraine is not a nation. If we go down the road that it's up to one country to decide which other country is a nation, God help us. And the second point is that the idea that it's up to someone to decide whether a country joins an alliance or doesn't. Now, I can see why neighbors will have strong views about whether you join an alliance or not. But in principle terms, these are the fundamental fabric of society, of international law that are being challenged. And they go beyond just the violation of Ukraine's sovereignty, physical violation of Ukraine's sovereignty at the moment. And that's absolutely applicable to Asia as well as it is to Europe. Sure. How about you? One to ten, how worried well, are you? Well, I think, number one, you know, as they say, we are still surrounded by the fog of war. Uh, I don't think anybody knows uh, what the final outcome will look like. But I must say that, like Jonathan, I'm very impressed by the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have put up an amazing struggle, okay? I mean, if you compare uh, Ashraf Ghani in Kabul, mm -hmm. running away even before the Taliban arrives, and you compare him with Zelensky, who, as Jonathan said, was dismissed as a comedian, has proven himself to be a true hero. I mean, frankly, no other words can describe guy who is now standing and fighting against great odds. And I must say clearly, uh, from all accounts, although Jonathan is better informed than I am, of course, uh, nothing has gone according to Russian plans, uh, I think, in the first week. But at the end of the day, overwhelming military power still has an effect. And it's conceivable that Ukraine could still fall completely uh, under Russian control. And then it will be, of course, a darker uh, world uh, uh, if that happens. But at the end of the day, uh, we also got to figure out how we avoid worst case outcomes uh, from Ukraine. And this is requires leadership, uh, requires statesmanship uh, to find some kind of uh, solutions. And I hope that people will try to avoid worst-case outcomes in Ukraine and try to make sure that we get some kind of, uh, like, like, like what Henry Kissinger said in his 2014 article in uh, Washington Post, find a solution that neither humiliates Russia nor humiliates Ukraine. That's our challenge today. So if you can find that and come out in that direction, then hopefully we will not be worse off. But there's no doubt at the same time 
that this event has changed the course of world history. And I think Ukraine's courage has also taught the world, and especially taught any great power, be careful before you invade another country. It's exactly. never that easy. Exactly. Kishore, can we, uh, can we, oh, I, I should ask you, one to 10, where do you stand? How worried are you in terms of how worried are you? 10 being the maximum. Uh, no, I would say I, I, in the same range as uh, Ravi and Jonathan, uh, five or six, you know. Right. But I don't think, for example, I don't think this will lead to a nuclear war. Right. If, if I thought this could lead to a nuclear war, I would say 10. <laughs> right. Um, now, can we turn to you also, Kishore, for some wisdom on ASEAN? So ASEAN took uh, about two days, I think, to formulate their statement. And uh, they do not mention Russia or Ukraine by name. They've called for maximum restraint. Now, hmm. why is it that we're not hearing from ASEAN, hearing loud and clear opinion from ASEAN on this issue? Well, I would say uh, ASEAN's position is probably the same as India's position. Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, there are some ASEAN countries, not Singapore, obviously. I think Ravi was uh, absolutely right when he said that Singapore's statement is crystal clear and very strong. But that is, of course, typical uh, of ASEAN because when you have 10 very diverse member states in ASEAN, it's perfectly normal uh, for ASEAN to come up with wishy-washy uh, statements and uh, as you know uh, ASEAN is a very weak organization but the one thing that I have documented in my book the ASEAN miracle that the paradox of ASEAN is that its strength lies in its weakness and because it's so weak everybody underestimates it and doesn't as, uh, appreciate the his strong historic contributions uh, that ASEAN has made. So, for example, the biggest event of 2022 before this Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, was the launch of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, the world's largest free trade agreement. And the United States cannot put together a press conference of United States, Japan and South Korea. ASEAN managed to persuade Japan and South Korea and China to sign a free trade agreement. Now, that's a really big deal that is changing the course of world history. And only ASEAN could do it because it's so weak, everybody trusts it. So the weakness of ASEAN, therefore, which is a liability in some areas, is also an asset in, in, in some areas. But in any case, what, even if ASEAN issued a strong statement, it would make no difference whatsoever. So in a sense, whether it's a weak statement or strong statement, nothing is going to change. Some realistic thoughts there. Thank you, Kishore. Uh, Ravi, I was wanting to ask you about a column that you wrote in January. Mm -hmm. So you suggested there that uh, <clears throat> the Russian President Putin had done his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, a favor. Now explain that, please. Why was that a favor? Oh, well, you know, I mean, that was a mildly facetious statement, uh, but uh, it's rooted in uh, a lot of historical events. Uh, I began by talking about uh, General Patton, the famous uh, American war hero, mm -hmm. uh, you know, who commanded Third Army in Europe. And, uh, you know, he was uh, seen as one of the big military heroes who uh, helped overcome the Nazis. And uh, if you go to that biopic, uh, The Last Days of Patton, uh -huh. within a few days of the war ending in Europe, now he's got all these Nazi uh, surrendered troops with him. And he's fantasizing about using those Nazi troops to push the Russians back to Moscow, as he described it. 
So what I meant to say was, uh, you know, the Americans are very easily distracted. Mm-hmm. And Putin, by his actions, uh, has brought America back into Europe fully. Mm-hmm. I mean, here they were talking about the Indo-Pacific. We are waiting to see big things happen. But uh, with one fell stroke, uh, and even before it's happened, you know, American attention, uh, Western attention has turned so much towards Europe. Mm-hmm. And as merely, uh, you know, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, you know, what uh, we in Singapore might say, cho-cho, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to poke, uh, to poke mm-hmm. uh, these guys to say that, look, uh, you know, do not miss uh, your main goals mm-hmm. uh, and do not get distracted. That was the essence of that column, Bhagya. Uh, Jonathan, would you agree? Are Americans easy to distract? Is this crisis going to result in, you know, the U.S. and the West sort of taking their eyes off the ball here in Asia Pacific? Well, clearly in the short term, it will result in that. Uh, there's no question about it. I mean, one of the big problems that we had for the last three decades is that very often it was difficult to persuade the U.S. administration to take Russia seriously. I mean, very often they would consult with Russia or inform Russia about what they're doing, pay lip service to the idea of cooperating with the Russians. But the truth is that nobody took them seriously. And that was one of the source of immense frustration for uh, Vladimir Putin. Even when they were discussing nuclear uh, disarmament, the demand increasingly from Washington is that this should be discussed with China included, that Russia just doing it with Russia was no longer sufficient. So there was, there definitely has been and will be a, a, a pool of the United States to Europe, because quite frankly, that is the biggest security crisis uh, at the moment. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there are other counterbalancing elements. First of all, the fact that Europe, Europe is going to spend much more on its own defenses. It will never match the American military presence. But, you know, in the last weekend, Mr. Putin has managed to shift Germany more than Trump uh, beating his uh, table or anything, any other American president. They passed a bill uh, spending, uh, authorizing spending of 100 billion euro extra on the German defense budget, meeting exactly what the Germans promised they were going to do and never intended to do up to now in terms of defense capabilities. So uh, as far as China is concerned as well, they may want to support uh, Russia up to a point. Personally, I think they are embarrassed about what the Russians are doing uh, and inconvenience. But if they do it for too long, they may discover that Europe will get drawn to the United States position on China much more closely if it appears that China is sustaining Russia. So I think that Ravi is right. In the short term, the Chinese may have had a respite. In the longer term, the ability of China to keep Europe separate from the United States may be reduced by the crisis taking place in Europe. I emphasize maybe. So it's not a straightforward swap from one continent to the other. And Kishore, do you agree? Is America going to be too preoccupied to care about us? Well, I think Jonathan used a critical word, maybe. You know, in these things, unfortunately, as a very old man, (laughs) 
I find that uh, in life, you always get surprises. So I can tell you, I was uh, shocked, uh, if not surprised, that Putin decided to go for an all-out invasion of Ukraine. I mean, I, I accepted the conventional wisdom that he would carve out two independent republics and leave the rest of Ukraine alone, which would have been a smarter thing to do, maybe. But instead, he went out for an all-out all invasion, which has shocked me. And, and it, these things always take, you get, takes time to understand what the long-term consequences are. So, I, so in the case of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there are two possible, uh, or at least or many possible scenarios, but let me just give you two. One is the one uh, which I give a very high degree of probability, which is what Jonathan has said, that it would lead to a consolidation of the Western alliance. And Europe will become definitely much closer to the United States. And that is, frankly, a minus for China. Uh, I agree with Jonathan. So that, that scenario is, is possible. But of course, there's an alternative scenario. Right now, so far, Putin has done very, very badly uh, in the first week of this invasion of Europe. But if somehow the things turn around, he takes over control of uh, Ukraine, and then, surprisingly, he's seen as a great hero by the Russian people. He gets canonized by the Orthodox Church. And he's now seen as a major historical figure. And suddenly, you have a different kind of Russia uh, to deal with. And both Europe and the U.S. will be focused so much on Russia that China will get another 10 free years to grow. Just as the Iraq war was a geopolitical gift to China, it gave China 10 free years to grow. This Ukraine thing could also give China 10 free years to grow. And then by the time the, the uh, United States turns around to look at China, 10 years from now, China's GNP will be bigger than the United States. So you see, in life, uh, you, there will always be alternative scenarios. So for us, we, from the point of view of a small state like Singapore, we've got to plan on the basis of all these scenarios and see which ones uh, play out. But I will be very cautious about making any definitive long-term uh, predictions of the outcomes. And we will, I, I suspect we will continue to be surprised right. by the results. So one thing, Ravi, and uh, I'm asking you this because your recent column was about the Xi-Putin uh, summit which took place in Beijing at the start of the Winter Olympics. My question to you is, in light of what we're seeing unfold on the ground now, uh, and what you've read and written about the summit, how important was that summit? What do you think happened? How does it uh, influence what we are seeing right now? Well, um, in terms of influencing what happened, I think the best evidence is that Putin waited for the Winter Olympic Games to mm. be over before he moved on Ukraine. So that's the immediate impact part of it. But uh, <clears throat> I wrote this and uh, Jonathan Esswell commented on, this, on that summit. I think that joint statement needs to be read very, very carefully. Mm -hmm. It is of deep import. It sets out a common worldview in a way the two nations have never done before. It puts Putin and Russian fate more into Chinese hands than ever before. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in a way it, it sort of underscores Putin's complete dependence or increasing dependence on China. Hmm. in a whole lot of sectors, uh, including energy. And what he's willing to concede, including space in the Arctic. China describes itself as a near-Arctic state. It's nowhere near the Arctic, but mm -hmm. that's its... The, and Putin is, is ready and welcoming of the Chinese presence in the Arctic. Hmm. 
He's cooperative in that. And it speaks about cooperating in new fields. Uh, so I think it is something that will have tremendous impact on the world, on Asia particularly. I've, I was in France last week and I was surprised to see the uh, sanguineness mm -hmm. uh, that the French have about that relationship, uh, at least the people I spoke with. Mm -hmm. And many in the West, including the Pentagon, I suspect, maybe they were there to change their view at this point, mm -hmm. still think, uh, don't take that relationship seriously enough in my view. I see. Yeah, I that see. is the essence of it. I see. So, uh, Ravi, you spoke about a um, dependence that, you know, Russia now has on China, economically and otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually hoping to draw in uh, Jonathan and uh, Kishore on this. Do you think, uh, from your understanding of what China is about, uh, and what Russia is about. Will Russia settle as the, agree to settle as the junior partner in this relationship? Well, and can China be the big bro? Yeah, well, to a large extent, uh, Russia is a junior party, partner in the relationship. There's no question about it. The Chinese economy is about eight times the size of the Russian economy. And let's remember that when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, they, Russia and China were more or less on parity in terms of the size of the economy at the time. So it's very much the junior partner. Uh, the Russians do a good job at disguising it, uh, as we've seen in the crisis in Kazakhstan, in Central Asia in January this year. It was the Russians that played the biggest role. They remain a very important military uh, security actor in Central Asia. So uh, there is the sort of the feeling in Moscow that they could manage the relationship. The truth is, I take these, this thing very seriously. Like Ravi, I think we are not taking it too seriously in the West. But there is still a learning curve for the Russians as well. Uh, to start realizing what being a junior partner to China may actually mean. And I don't think they've been that way. And I think that that is the bit that the fallout from the Ukraine crisis that will come their way. I mean, the sanctions that were imposed on them, what we see now, the results in only 24 hours since the sanctions were introduced, is catastrophic, you know. We've seen something that I'm sure the Chinese are watching very carefully. The fact that you've got national reserves of the central bank makes no difference at the end because you can't move or spend those national reserves if the United States and most Western countries impose sanctions on you. Now, this has a very fundamental and very big question marks about the international system and how a country like Russia and China will behave with it. So I think that uh, the Russians will now have to discover what it actually means to be a junior partner to China, because the Chinese agenda is most certainly not the Russian agenda when it comes either to what they hope to achieve in the world or to where they hope to be. And Kishore, could you come in? How do you think China fancies itself in this role? Are they comfortable? Uh, do they define the terms? Are they setting the directions? What is your reading? You, I know you follow Russia so closely. You've written a book uh, that's, uh, that's very widely read. So please share with us. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for mentioning the book because I was going to show it <laughs> <laughs> as China One, which uh, your colleague asked me to put down. Anyway, it, uh, the, 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 one of the most surprising things I say in the book is that the, any kind of alliance between China and Russia is not natural. I agree with Jonathan there or completely when he says that. And in the long run, if you're a Russian strategic planner, even though Germany is going to spend more on defense, uh, Germany is no longer going to be the kind of threat in the way that Hitler was uh, in the World War II. But the longest border that Russia has is with China. And if I was a Russian strategic planner, I would worry about that long border rather than the European border, because the Europeans overall are still a very relatively a peaceful uh, border that they will have. So in the long run, I don't think there'll be a natural alliance between uh, Russia and China. Although now, for the next few years, there will be a, a kind of pact where they will work together uh, for obvious reasons, uh, because both are benefiting from it in the short term. Uh, and um, the but the 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 most important point I think was made by Jonathan earlier. Uh, when he said that the most powerful weapon that the U.S. has deployed against Russia actually is not its aircraft carriers, not its strategic bombers, but the U.S. dollar. And I'm sure China is watching very carefully how the use of the U.S. dollar has crippled the Russian economy significantly. And then the Chinese must be saying, aha, when I have a problem with U.S., they will use the U.S. dollar. So what do I do? The logical response, which, by the way, I also discuss in China One, I have a whole section on why the U.S. dollar will become the United States' biggest weapon against China and how China will work out a long-term strategy to get out of the vice of the US dollar. And, and, and so I think what is going to accelerate in the next 10 years is a plan by China in one way or another to create international alternative payments mechanisms so that China, which is the largest trading power in the world, will be able to trade with the world with or without the US dollar. Now, this is not possible today, by the way. Not possible. And the renminbi, by the way, will not become an international convertible currency. It will not. So you cannot use the renminbi. So you've got to find something else. And that something else, I suspect, is what China is going to look for. And, and as it builds it up, it'll be very gradual. As it builds it up, right, using AI, using blockchain technology, whatever it is. And then when that day comes, the capacity of the United States to apply pressure on China will diminish significantly. So which is why I'm sure the, from the Chinese point of view, every day they must be watching what happens and say, okay, this will be done to us, to China. What do we do? And they must be working out systematically the responses to each of these moves. But I agree with Jonathan that uh, the use of the US dollar has really damaged Russia dramatically. Right. While we're still talking big picture, uh, I'd like to ask you, Kishore, you, you're an acknowledged expert on this and you have a distinct view of 
geopolitics. Uh, so my question is, are we witnessing right now in front of our eyes a new world order? Is that in the make already? I think a new world order was in the making with or without Ukraine. I mean, I mean, as you know, the big argument I make is that the, the, for the last 200 years, we have seen Western domination of world history. As we know that. I mean, the West colonized the world, the West dominated the world. But now, finally, uh, in the 21st century, the uh, economic power has, has really shifted to Asia. I think the Chinese economy, I think, is more like 10 to 12 times the size of the Russian economy. I think more than eight times. And in the in PPP terms, the top five economies in, in the year 2050 be number one, China, number two, India, number three, United States, number four, I think, Indonesia and Japan. So you can see out of the top five, it will be the Asian economies. And, and so naturally, economic power is going to shift in this region. Now, that, that, doesn't, have, that doesn't mean, by the way, that everything will be hunky-dory in Asia. Asia has got lots of tensions also that Ravi has been writing about and speaking about, and Ravi is right about that. But nonetheless, the weight of economic power is going to shift to Asia, and that's going to transform the world in, in, in one way or another. You know? And so that, that kind of new order is happening. And if indeed, for example, in a worst-case scenario, Europe and U.S. are bogged down with Russia and Ukraine, and Asia keeps growing without any wars peacefully, that will only accelerate the shift to Asia. So but we, we are, again, as I say, in the case of Ukraine, it's, we are still in the fog of war. Now, we don't know for sure what's going to happen. It could be either a decisive victory by the U.S. It could be some sort of victory for Russia. We don't know. We have to wait and see. Right. So, Jonathan, can I ask you to peer a bit out of that fog of war and <clears throat> tell us if after the war, will the West still be in the driver's seat? Well, it depends what you mean by the driver's seat. I mean, clearly, they would have to spend much more on defense in a way that they didn't uh, before. Um, there is a very big question at the end of this war in, 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 in Ukraine, which is how do we engage with Russia? What, what, what is it? I mean, nobody is now saying, how do you dial down from the current draconian sanctions? How do you talk to them? Uh, what is it, the relationship that we have to do with them? I would say, if you ask me whether it changed Asia, perhaps it changed Asia less at the moment, but it changed Europe in a fundamental way. There is a very strong feeling in Europe that the last 30 years, um, you know, the so-called post-Cold War period is over now. And with it went a lot of these rather silly, I would put, uh, assumptions that somehow war has been banished from Europe. Uh, it was almost a racist kind of argument that white people don't do it to each other, if I can be so crude, and a sort of a shock in Europe that you can have a full-scale war uh, on the continent. We shouldn't have been shocked, but we were. This idea that we banished uh, great power politics or balance of power politics or spheres of influence, uh, the sort of the unreal discourse that we're only talking about values and not talking about influence, all that kind of stuff that was generated for a while, which I know my colleagues have 
frequently tried to puncture in the past, all this is now gone. I mean, even the Germans now have, and I say even the Germans who were the most reluctant to face that reality, now have to face it. So I think for Europe, this was a cold shower. And I think the Europe at the end of this crisis will be a very different Europe. Right. Jonathan, uh, Ravi, now I want to talk about India's veto at the UN Security Council. Um, is, is that, did, did New Delhi really have no choice in this? And is it a vote that India is going to come to regret? It's tough to say whether it's going to regret it. Uh -huh. But it's clearly something that they thought through it very carefully before they did it. Uh -huh. And uh, the, uh, I can't speak for New Delhi's thinking, but from uh, Singapore, looking at what's happened, I try to analyze why they would have done it. And uh, I get the answers when I analyze it. In the first place, uh, you know, India con continues to be heavily dependent on Russians for their arms industry. I mean, for, the, for, their, for their military. Right. Uh, if you look at, I mean, the Sukhoi 30 is their main strike aircraft, even today. I mean, they've been buying from the Americans, but they're not bought any of the fighters. They bought not bought the F-15s, mm -hmm. the F-18s, or even the F-35. There's no planning. I mean, they went for the Rafale instead. Mm -hmm. So the Indian Air Force has got, by my count, at least 270 Sukhoi 30s. I see. If you look at their main battle tank, it's, they have about 1,300 uh, T-90s that are made uh, in, in Russia. Right. They, their submarines, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they have between eight and nine kilo-class submarines. Mm -hmm. Their indigenous nuclear submarine project would not have been possible without Russian help. Right. Recently, they sold BrahMos uh, cruise missiles to the Philippines, but those missiles were co-designed with Russia. And the next stage, BrahMos 2, which is the hypersonic, is in co-development with the Russians. But beyond all this is the vote in the Security Council that the Russians have been willing to use as many times as the Indians wanted it. Mm -hmm. And that is the most significant value of that relationship is that vote in the Security Council. And uh, despite the Russian entente with uh, China, when it came to the crisis in Ladakh, mm -hmm. the Russians opened their military stores to the Indians and said, come take what you need. Right. China tried to stop it. They could not. Mm -hmm. And uh, some semblance uh, of uh, 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 a, a brittle peace was broken by uh, Sergei Lavrov in Moscow when he called uh, Wang Yi and uh, Jay Shankar to Moscow, sat in the room with, with the two of them. And in the Russian mindset, mm -hmm. there still is room for a Russia-India-China relationship. And you see that in the joint statement that they signed in Beijing uh, when Putin went to see uh, Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. So that's the background to, uh, uh, to that, that vote. Right. And you might uh, recall that it, uh, India is not the only country that abstained. Yes. Very significantly, the United Arab Emirates also yes. abstained. Mm -hmm. And I think you need to watch that very closely. Why did they do that? Right. So it's, it's not just the Indians, but some, somebody like in the Middle East that is uh, quite close to the Americans. Right. Uh, they, in fact, have plans to buy the F-35. They're building a relationship with Israel. And yet they abstained. So what is it that they're trying to do? 
Okay, so do you have any answers to that, Jonathan? Uh, quickly, because we are now coming to the close of this uh, discussion. I, I, I mean, I, I, I hear all the arguments. I think it's still fanciful, the idea that somehow a Russia that is going to be so cash-strapped is going to give up on its top uh, customer for weapons just because the Indians may have misbehaved in a vote in the UN Security Council. I take the point of Russian diplomatic support for India. That, I think, is a serious one. But I think the weapons sales one and the idea that somehow the Russians will pull the plug on what has been their very large source of revenue is, to me, uh, rather, rather fanciful. I also, I mean, there is, we shouldn't underestimate, there is a lot of question marks in Europe about India's behavior at the moment. And uh, the, the, the rather ironic joke that I heard is that India is a staunch supporter of the principle of sovereignty of states when it applies to India. <laughs> and uh, Kishore. Well, I just add one more thing to that point. Very quickly. Uh, very quickly right. What Jonathan said. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the vote itself, I mean, uh, you know, the, the Russians have been trying to diversify their, uh, their, their, uh, the purchases of their arms. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not without significance that uh, on the day uh, that the Russians moved into Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, the Pakistani prime minister was yes. in Moscow yes. uh, to see Putin. And he's met him for three hours. Right. So that also plays into the Indian calculus by, I'm not defending the Indian uh, position, I'm trying to explain it. Right, thank you. And Kishore, if I can very quickly turn to you for the last thought on this, uh, for this uh, round table anyway, uh, I want to ask you, if you met President Putin in the UN lobby, what would you say to him as an Asian, as a Singaporean? Uh, just by the way, very quickly uh, on India, yes. I think it's uh, the, the very important the point that Ravi emphasized that for India, since India doesn't have a veto in the UN Security Council, having the Russian veto as an ally is actually very important for India. So you've got to understand what's their fundamental concern there. Now, on what, what I tell Putin, I think I would tell him that in the 21st century, countries become great not because they have nuclear arsenals, uh, not because they have massive uh, numbers of tanks and aircraft carriers and submarines. They become great powers uh, when they become great economies and develop uh, very large middle-class populations who are very happy and satisfied with their lives and are happy to stay in their own countries and, and live and thrive and prosper there. And that's the big story of Asia. Asia is creating the world's largest middle-class populations. And, and what's interesting about Asia is that the political system vary dramatically. I mean, the Chinese political system is the opposite of the Indian political system. But both are producing very large, successful, thriving uh, middle classes. So I would say to, to President Putin, this is not the 19th century. This is the 21st century. Why don't you switch your focus now and do in some ways what China and India are doing, focus on developing Russia as a great uh, economy. And, if, and, and that is something the Russians can do because the Russian people, as we know, as we saw during the Soviet Union, are very talented. They could have a space program that is among the best in the world. So the Russian people have tremendous uh, amount of talent and drive and capabilities. Develop the Russian people. 
Uh, and thank you, Kishore. We hope that uh, Putin, Mr. Putin is hearing you. Uh, those are sane thoughts indeed. Uh, thank you to all the panelists for your uh, wonderful contributions. And thank you very much to our audience for joining in. Um, please stay updated on the latest news on the Ukraine crisis at thestraitstimes.com. Thank you and have a great day. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.